Section 2 of Stupor Mundi, The Life and Times of Frederick II by Lionel Alshorn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1. A Heritage of Strife, Part 2. In the meantime, the papal influence was gaining great strength from another source. The Crusades, which commenced at the end of the 11th century, were initiated and directed by the successors of St. Peter. The prominent part which the popes took in these enterprises naturally fostered their authority and enhanced their prestige. The resources of Christendom were placed in the hands of the papacy, and the vast wealth collected for the maintenance of these costly expeditions was to a large extent at the disposal of the pope, who was not always too conscientious to employ it against his Christian enemies. Moreover, the call to a crusade was a formidable weapon, which the vicar of Christ frequently wielded against a monarch who was growing too powerful and too independent to please him. If the unhappy sovereign refused to squander his wealth and endanger his life by embarking for the Holy Land at the papal summons, the dread sentence of excommunication was his punishment. If he obeyed the call and met with disaster and the shame of failure that so many crusaders encountered, he returned with reduced power and prestige, and was less able to resist the papal encroachments. It was thus, writes Milman, by trammeling their adversaries with vows which they could not decline, and from which they could not extricate themselves, by thus consuming their wealth and resources on this wild and remote warfare, that the popes, who themselves decently eluded or were prevented by age or alleged occupations from embarkation in these adventurous expeditions, broke and wasted away the power and influence of the emperors. The Hohenstaufen suffered again and again from this unsaintly policy of the popes. The founder of the greatness of the House of Hohenstaufen was one Frederick, a knight of Schwabia, who served the unhappy emperor Henry IV. In return for a rare and unswerving loyalty, Henry bestowed upon Frederick the hand of his daughter Agnes with the Duchy of Schwabia as her dower. Frederick built himself a new abode high on the hill of Staufen, and hence the family took the name of Hohenstaufen. The next generation of the house, which consisted of two sons, Frederick and Conrad, served their uncle, the Emperor Henry V., and on his death in 1125 inherited all his ancestral possessions, including a deadly enmity with the house of Gvelf, footnote, from which our present king traces his descent, end footnote. Thirteen years later, Conrad the Hohenstaufen and Henry the Gvelf appeared as rival candidates for the imperial throne. Conrad succeeded in gaining the suffrages of the electors, and was crowned by the Pope's legate at Aix-la-Chapelle, 1138. Footnote. The disappointed Gvelfs soon came to blows with the successful Conrad. In the conflicts which ensued the two battle cries, Ho for the Gvelf and Ho for the Weiblingen, a castle of the Hohenstaufens, were used. These names, the latter corrupted into Ghibelline, were afterwards carried into Italy where they were employed to describe the two factions whose struggles disturbed the peace of Italy for three centuries or more. 
the Ghibellines were the supporters of the imperial party, and the Guelphs the supporters of the anti-imperial or papal party. Every Italian city had its Guelph and Ghibelline faction, who were constantly at strife with one another. End footnote. The first Hohenstaufen emperor was not allowed the leisure to build up too formidable a power. Five years after his election, he was called to a crusade. Reluctant to neglect the task of consolidating the imperial authority in Italy, Conrad at first refused. He was, however, reduced to obedience by the threat of excommunication, and in 1147 led a vast German host toward the east. Cheated and starved by their Greek allies and harassed unceasingly by their Turkish enemies, the Crusaders were compelled to retreat after over 60,000 of their number had succumbed to heat, famine, pestilence, or the sword. The next year Conrad was again urged to journey to the Holy Land. He joined King Louis of France at Jerusalem, and though he gained great renown for personal valor, he was again unsuccessful. He returned to Germany and died in 1152. Although he had led his subjects to disaster, Conrad had earned the admiration of Germany by his courage and strength, and his nephew was elected in his place. The red-bearded Frederick I, or Barbarossa, as he is more commonly called, is one of the national heroes of the fatherland. During a reign of forty years, he brought an internal peace and order to Germany, greater than she had known since the days of Otto the Great. He secured the homage of the Dukes of Denmark, Poland, Hungary, and Pomerania, and the great diet which he held at Mayence in 1184, and which was attended by 40,000 knights, was a striking demonstration of the might of his German sovereignty. Yet all his power was unable to secure for him an effective control over the turbulent cities of northern Italy. Influenced by lofty ideas of the imperial authority, he made repeated efforts to revive the more substantial dominion of Charlemagne and Otto. The great Italian towns, headed by Milan and assisted by the Pope Alexander III, finally formed themselves into the Lombard League, which in 1176 inflicted an overwhelming defeat on Barbarossa and his German host on the field of Legnano. A truce for six years was made after this battle and was followed by the Treaty of Constance. The emperor was compelled to grant the right of private war and the privilege of self-jurisdiction to the untamable cities, on condition that their respective podestas should receive investiture from his deputy and that they should furnish him with provisions whenever he should pass through Italy. They thus became republican states, with only a nominal subjection to the empire. It is needless to say that Barbarossa incurred the violent enmity of the papacy. The state of tension that always existed between the two parties was well instanced by an incident which occurred at the Diet of Besançon, held in the early part of Frederick's reign. Two papal legates appeared with complaints from Pope Adrian, in the course of the argument which followed, one of the legates haughtily inquired, From whom does the king hold his power if not from the pope? Whereupon a German baron sprang up and was with difficulty prevented by the emperor from striking the papal official down with his sword. 
when the feeling between the two parties was as bitter as this, it was not likely to be long before they drifted into open strife. Barbarossa was unwise enough to give the occasion for a rupture. Adrian died in 1159, and the cardinals could not come to a unanimous decision in electing his successor. Fourteen voted for Alexander III, and nine for Victor IV. Frederick called a general council to settle the matter, but Alexander, who considered himself to be duly elected by the majority, resented this interference, and as the emperor persisted in his refusal to recognize him, the sentence of excommunication was again proclaimed. Frederick, therefore, openly espoused the cause of Victor, and for some years Europe was bewildered by the existence of two popes. Barbarossa was at this time at the height of his power, and his successes against the Lombard city so alarmed Alexander that he fled to France. There was open enmity between Pope and Emperor for fourteen years, until Frederick was finally brought to submission by the victory of the Lombard League, the Pope's allies, at Legnano. The two enemies met at Venice, and once again the successor of the Caesars humbled himself before the successor of St. Peter. Overcome by some outburst of emotion, Frederick cast off his purple mantle and flung himself on his knees before the venerable Pope, who raised him and bestowed the kiss of peace. There was no further breach with the papacy during Barbarossa's lifetime. Indeed, all Christendom was brought into temporary unison by the news which arrived in Europe in 1187 that the sepulchre of Christ had once again fallen into the hands of the infidels. Richard of England and Philip of France took the cross and set out by sea for the Holy Land. Barbarossa, though well stricken in years, was not one to linger at the call of duty. The grand old warrior girded on his sword, summoned his vassals around him, and marched overland to join the monarchs of England and France at Acre. Much might have been accomplished had his life been spared, for the mutual animosity of Richard and Philip would have been subdued by the presence of the renowned emperor. But almost at the threshold of Syria, a tragic death overtook him. His army was slowly crossing a river by a narrow bridge, and the impatient Hohenstaufen plunged into the swiftly flowing stream to gain the opposite bank. The tide overpowered his aged limbs, and he was brought to land a lifeless corpse. His sorrowing followers bore the remains of their father and lord to Antioch, and disheartened and saddened by his loss, only a remnant reached Acre. Henry the Sixth, who succeeded him, had many of his father's virile qualities, and a double share of the Hohenstaufen taint of cruelty. To him belongs the odium of having participated in the imprisonment of Richard Coeur de Lyon on his return from the crusade. We can imagine that Barbarossa, had he been alive, would have acted very differently toward the impetuous and dauntless English hero, who in so many ways was a man after his own heart. Henry added to the Hohenstaufen dominions those lands which were to be the chief delight of his imperial son. By his marriage with Constance, the rightful heir to the crown of Sicily, Henry had a lawful claim, not only to that island itself, but also to the southern half of the Italian peninsula. Soon after his accession to the imperial dignity, he led a German host into his new dominions which had been seized from the usurper Tancred. 
His first campaign, though not entirely successful, was followed by another, which reduced all opposition. The cruelties which he practiced toward his defeated enemies were so barbarous that he was laid under the sentence of excommunication. Celestine, however, who at this time occupied the chair of St. Peter, was a feeble character, and Henry's only answer was to seize many of the lands which the church claimed in the south. The acquisition of the lordship of Sicily and Naples was to prove a doubtful blessing to the imperial cause. Hedged in to the north and south by the hated Hohenstaufen power, the bitter enmity of the papacy was now rendered doubly persistent by the fear for its independence. There was henceforth to be no chance of a lasting peace until one of the two warring powers should be crushed into the dust. It was thus to no heritage of fair peace that the son of Henry was destined to succeed, but to a crown made heavy with a weight of hatred, a hatred that could cloak itself under the mask of religion, could enlist in its service all the fanaticism and superstition of the age of faith, and that could drown the defensive cry of render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's with the sanction of supreme power. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. End of section two.